How can we support nurses living with substance use disorders and help them to recover and rise? Let's talk all about it right here with my friend and nurse colleague, Tiffany Swedeen, right here on episode 275 of The Nurse Keith Show. Hey there, this is Nurse Keith. In these days of the COVID-19 pandemic, we're disseminating as much high quality, evidence-based information and expert opinion about the situation as we can in our special COVID-19 episodes. Meanwhile, we still want to support you in your nursing career and your personal development. So please enjoy this interview with a rising nurse leader who brings so much to the table. Be well, stay safe, and many blessings on you, your loved ones, your colleagues, your communities, and everyone on this troubled yet beautiful planet of ours. And we are joined today by friend of the pod and my dear friend, Tiffany Swedeen of recoverandrise.com. And Tiffany, welcome to the show. And I want to jump right in and ask you, what does recover and rise really mean to you? Oh, thanks, Keith. I'm super happy to be here. Recover and rise is a platform that I have created to help end the stigma and shame that surrounds substance use and addiction and mental health disorders in in the healthcare industry specifically. Okay, that's great. And when you say in the healthcare industry specifically, you get even more specific than that, right? You focus on nurses specifically for the most part, right? Yeah. Okay. And why is this so important for nurses right now? Like what's going on? Let's just focus on the United States. Like what's going on in the United States right now around substance use and substance use disorders that your services are just so, so necessary right now? Substances like drugs and alcohol and prescription um, pills, narcotics, opiates are utilized as a coping mechanism. And that's not new whatsoever. But, you know, in the last 20 years, we've had an opiate crisis brewing. And now, you know, the world is on fire. It feels like the U.S. is on fire. And nurses are truly on the front lines of this. And as we know, nurses nurses know and, and their families know and their friends know, nurses are amazing caregivers and not necessarily that amazing at taking care of themselves. So um, add in, you know, the, the challenging career, being a caregiver at home, and the propensity to use substances to feel better and to cope, to self-medicate. Um, it's a big problem in the nursing profession. It is indeed a big problem. So when we talk about substance use disorders among nurses then, how rampant is it really? Do you have your finger on the pulse of that? Like, is it very, very widespread? Is it something that some nurses are having issues with? How would you define the scope of the problem right now in 2020? The American Nurses Association estimates that 20%, around 20% of nurses have substance use disorder. They estimate a smaller percentage, closer to 10%, that may have it to the degree that they are impaired at work. Um, That's still a significant statistic, 10% of nurses. There's about 3 million nurses in the U.S. That's a lot of people. 
It is a lot of people. The, the challenging thing anytime we're talking about statistics and addiction is that mm-hmm. how do you how do you ensure that this is accurate? Because it's not talked about. Nurses are not going to share their information. So anecdotally, I estimate that it's higher than that. Higher than 10 or higher than 20? I think probably higher than 20%. If we're including alcohol, alcohol use disorder, utilizing alcohol to maybe not the degree that nurses are showing up drunk at work or drinking at work, Mm -hmm. but utilizing it as a coping mechanism, even at home and self-medicating and engaging in risky drinking of alcohol. I see. Okay, that that makes sense. So not they n- might not necessarily being be in a place of using it to incredible excess, but it's still causing it's it's part of what they're using in order to cope when they come home from work or after they help the kids with their homework or whatever. It's how they kind of support themselves through the stress of the day or the week or the year, <laughs> right? Right. Yeah. I want to ask you a question that I, I know you talk about this stuff publicly, so I'm going to ask you, what led you to enter this world of working with nurses with substance use disorders? What brought you to this to the gate, so to speak, and enter into this work? That's a good way of putting it. I was just, when you said the gate, I was just picturing this like this big, elaborate gate into recovery, into the world of recovery. That's amazing. Um, I, I entered into, the, into that gate to help others because I needed the help first. So as you said, it, it is quite public. Um, I, I've been talking about this since I was about a year sober is when I became public with my own story. So I was initially uh, became addicted to Vicodin because I was taking it for migraines. And that started around 2013, 2014. I began taking it regularly, habitually. And within a year or two, I was um, physically, psychologically dependent mm-hmm. and addicted to, to opiates. I happen to have the experience when I take opiates of feeling quite energetic and euphoric as as many people do others feel sluggish and tired and nauseated and uncomfortable and that's just not me i um i i thrived on opiates for, for quite a while and i was working in a medical icu at the time and drinking heavily i was in a tumultuous relationship with my partner at the time and my daughter was a teenager <laughs> and I was a single parent. I was also the caregiver for my father who was terminally ill. And I suffered from, from burnout, professional job burnout and opiates made things better. And, you know, with, because of tolerance, I needed more and more over time, you know, one or two Vicodin didn't do it. And I began mixing pills and alcohol at home uh-huh. And for a while, I had still had some pretty strict boundaries around that, as you know, most nurses do. We would never drink at work. We would never take our pain medicine or our anti-anxiety medicine before a shift. We only take it at home. 
But as I became more physically and psychologically dependent, I began breaking through those boundaries. So to fast forward a little bit, where recovery happened was in 2016, I was um, reported to my manager for suspicion of diversion Mm. of narcotics. And for those who don't know what the pretty little word diversion means, (laughs) it means stealing, stealing narcotics from the workplace. And um, the allegations were true. Mm -hmm. So I was invited at the time to go on administrative leave. And and I, I say invited, not really even facetiously, it many nurses are fired on the spot. Absolutely. When this happens. Right. Yeah. I'm sure you know that from so many people you talk to now. Yeah. 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 Many, many more are, are fired than are allowed to continue in their place of employment. So I know that that was um, a huge grace that was offered to me. And I live in Washington State, and Washington State has an alternative to discipline program as well, as many states do, actually. And the the list of those are on my website, by the way. There's a link to, to every state that has them or has one of those. So I I was given this option to go on leave, go into treatment, enter into uh, the Washington Health Professional Services Program. And in doing so, I could maintain my license as long as I completed a contract with with the state, with the Board of Nursing. Wow. And so why, why does Washington offer this? I mean, it sounds like not all states do. So you happen to have, like you said, the grace of working somewhere one with an employer willing to, to like help you out and then living in a state where this was actually possible. So is Washington always offered this? Is this just because it's a it's a progressive place that offers such programs for nurses in trouble? I think that alternative to discipline programs began in the early to mid 90s. I I don't hmm. I could be very wrong about that, but I am remembering um a nurse who's one of the facilitators for a, a peer group that I'm in, she has somewhere around 30 years sober, and she she talked about that going into the first the first alternative to discipline program um, in the early 90s. So, wow. so I could be wrong. We, we could look that up, but Washington, I think, would recognize that nurses are humans and are going to get DUIs, are going to have alcohol use disorder, are going to have the the possibility of becoming addicted to drugs. And also, there's, I mean, the access we have to narcotics. Yes. So <laughs> if taking a punitive standpoint doesn't do anything for, for the employer side, the administrative side, they're just mm-hmm. going to end up with high turnover and and loss of staff, if that's the case. Good point. Good point. I'm sure not all states and boards of nursing see it that way, but lucky for you, of course, the grace of having that and being able to enter into that. So it's my understanding that you're about to finish that period of time, right? I have 15 months left and I, I'm counting. I am counting down. Mm-hmm. It's very exciting. 
So there may be a nurse listening out there going, hmm, okay, so I hear myself in this story and she or he might want to know, okay, so Tiffany has this thing and the board of nursing knows all about it. Her employer knows all about it. She has 15 months to go. She might be asking, so if I did this, what do I need to be afraid of when those 15 months are over? Not, I mean, it's five years, right? But when you're done, what happens to your license and how do you move on? And what are the long-term repercussions professionally, if there are any at this juncture, once you've finished the program? In my case, there won't be. So that is one of the benefits of doing an alternative to discipline program is that I chose to do five years being monitored. I do um, at least two random UAs, your, you know, urinalysis drug tests a month. Right. And um, and I there were restrictions on my license for the first year. There's still a few, like I'm unable to work more than 40 hours a week, et cetera. But in, in being compliant with all of these restrictions and criteria, my license will be free and clear. There will be no public record whatsoever. Wow. As Yeah, as long as I'm compliant. So there are nurses who go through Washington's program and have, have relapses during the probation period. And each time there is, is a slip or a relapse, each time this happens, it's case-by-case case scenario. So the Board of Nursing is notified by our, we have a case manager, each one of us, and then they get to decide what is the next step and does there need to be discipline? Do you need a new evaluation, an assessment from a drug and alcohol chemical dependency uh, treatment center? So there are nurses who will have what's called a red mark on their license if you look up public action. Does that make sense? Yes. So that can allay the fears of someone who thinks, okay, maybe I'll do what Tiffany did, but I want to know like what's over the rainbow when I'm done. Like what's what's gonna happen to me when I finish? Yeah. I mean, I, I had so many misconceptions about the the program. I knew I knew it existed because I was a unit supervisor in an acute care department in a hospital for a few years. Mm. And I had employees who were, you know, doing their probationary period with this program, but I, I didn't understand the ins and outs. I had a very, a, a, really a pejorative viewpoint that it was punitive, it was shame-based, and um, and I never really asked those, those detailed questions. But the thing is, you can actually call your, if your state has one. And by the way, I think it's only two or three states that don't. Oh, that's nice to know. Okay. Yeah. Good to know. Most states do. Okay. Um, you can call their confidential line and ask questions. You can, you don't have to use your name. You don't have to report yourself. You can just call and say, here is my, and that's what actually what I did. I wasn't for, I wasn't sure what I was going to do in the first week after being caught mm -hmm. and put on leave as mm -hmm. you can imagine that was a quite a dark time i'm sure and um you know i was deciding if i was gonna live or die or do the mm -hmm. program or get into recovery or leave nursing altogether and my first phone call with them was just really a questionnaire and they said you know call us back when you've made a decision they let wow. me know kind of what to expect hmm. and yeah so 
so that's that's a great way to to um, ease some of the the fears around it because it it really does depend on what the offense is too. You know, e- each person is case by case. Right. Oh my gosh. Right. Of course, every every situation, every nurse, every circumstance is going to be very unique, right? And I'm sure there's some that are quite severe and then others that are not quite so severe. Well, well, first, I just want to acknowledge as your colleague and your friend and a fan, um, just the courage it takes to lay your story on the line and tell your story publicly. And I just want to, you know, bow to you and the courage that this, that you embody. And, you know, not everyone is going to do this journey and then like launch a blog and a business and like be out there talking about it on podcasts for thousands of people to hear. So one, just the courage to go through the recovery journey is one thing, right? That takes a lot of courage. And I'm sure you've seen a lot of courage in the people who you know, who are also on this journey with you, whatever stage of the journey they're in. And, but then you have this extra layer of courage of being so public about it. And as your friend and as a colleague, I also want to ask, you know, you were saying how there's no mark on your license. So your license is free and clear. So this nurse who I was just mentioning, this person out there listening who thinks, oh, maybe I will do this now that Tiffany's told me what this is really like and what I need to do in order to come out the other side. So for you, I'm just curious, of course, your license will be free and clear in 15 months. And let's say you go to another employer and the employer, of course, they're not going to see anything on your license and they hire you. And then if they hear you on a podcast or see something you've written so how does one approach something like that when you've actually become a public figure? Because you are a public figure now. Do you have thoughts about that? Yeah, I do have thoughts about that. I, um, Like I said, I was lucky to remain with my employer mm-hmm. um, after a few months of treatment and out of work. But I have applied for other jobs since then. I, you know, I've considered working at a big university here in Washington. Mm-hmm. And... I had to take my resume to them that had a, you know, a three month blank space between, you know, jobs. And also I have to have a worksite monitor. So even with within the program now, I have considered that. And then going forward, it would be hard not to know, uh, you know, what I do and who I am because it's such a part of me. I, I would, I wouldn't think I could keep it secret from an employer ever. Right. So my stand on this has been really to, approach this as one of my strengths and not a weakness. And that's probably coming across a little cliche, but it's so, it's so true, Keith. It is so true that this is something that I, um, you know, I suffered for a time and overcame and have learned and have grown. And in so many ways, I am a, a better, safer, more effective, more capable nurse than I ever was even, you know, before I was diverting. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's beautiful. And it really sets an even stronger, more powerful example for that nurse out there who's thinking, hi, I could do this. I could really follow in Tiffany's footsteps and do this. So, you know, that's, it's an incredible response. And I think, 
the right employer will see that for what it is. And if you go to an employer who's like, mm, no, sorry, you don't want to work for them anyway. That's exactly right. Yeah. If they're not going to be progressive and forward thinking enough to see the value of having someone on staff who has this experience, who could actually be an asset to that particular community, that work community, then you don't want to be there because they, they're not going to value it anyway. So good for you for having that level of clarity and presence of mind to be able to, to just be so clear and forthright. It's just, it's very beautiful and, and very courageous. Thank you. I, I will say, I want to say for the listeners that I did not go into recovery feeling that way. I, I was extraordinarily ashamed. I was, um, you know, the first time I stepped into a peer support group meeting with other nurses in similar situation, I, I couldn't speak. I was physically vibrating. And I, I didn't tell my own daughter who lived at home. I faked going to work for three months over the summer mm -hmm. while I was actually going to treatment. And um, it, took, it took a long time to get to this place. And not everybody needs to be this public. It's, it's, our own, it's a personal journey to decide how non-anonymous we're going to be with our recovery or sobriety. But for me, the first year, I felt like the first year of sobriety, I felt like I was still living a double life. And I had been living a double life for years with substance use and addiction, hiding so much of myself. And recovery was supposed to represent, you know, freedom from this. And for the first year, it, it really, it didn't. I was, I was going back to the same hospital, but I was working in a different department. I was going in a door where no one could see me, you know, coming and going where I wouldn't run into anyone I knew and just still so enshrouded in, in shame. And by talking with others who were in recovery, who had, you know, longer time than I and more personal growth than I, seeing role models who were recovering out loud, I, I learned that it was possible. And, you know, finally, after a year, I, I took that step of speaking to my family first. By first, I mean the night before I posted a blog <laughs> to the world. <laughs> there you go. Okay. Yeah. This is going to be read by maybe thousands <laughs> of people. So I think you might want to know about it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Just saying. Just saying. Exactly. Right. Wow. That's, thank you for sharing that part too. And for that person out there listening who feels the shame and if they can see that you felt it and you're now beyond that, that particular part of that journey, that's, that's a powerful thing for them to hear. So we're going to take a really quick break. And when we come back, I want to talk about what sobriety and recovery really mean to you and what they might mean to other people and a little bit about treatment. And then definitely we want to talk about recovery coaching and mindfulness-based relapse prevention, which is very important for you. And of course we have to talk about Cassie, the wonder dog. So we'll be right back for the second half of episode 275. Nurses, be a part of something greater. This episode of The Nurse Keith Show is sponsored by University of Maryland Medical System, who are committed to supporting their community 
patients, and employees during this unprecedented time. They are actively seeking dedicated nurses for permanent positions throughout their 16 hospital system in the greater Baltimore area, as well as a float pool to treat COVID-19 patients in field hospitals and pop-up medical facilities. When you join the nursing team at UMMS, you're doing more than simply providing care to the community. You're embarking on a journey of personal and professional development with unparalleled opportunities to advance your skills and enhance your clinical practice. At UMMS, they foster a collaborative environment built on a culture of teamwork and mutual respect. Their nurses take pride in caring for their patients and celebrating each other's contributions, and they recognize and reward their dedication to patient-centered care. To join their team of healthcare heroes, please visit ummscareers.org. That's ummscareers.org, the University of Maryland Medical System, an equal opportunity employer. I thank UMMS from the bottom of my heart for their generous support of The Nurse Keith Show. All right, we're back with the second half of episode 275. We are here with my dear friend and colleague and just an amazing nurse and human being, Tiffany Swedeen. And thanks for being here, Tiffany. And right before the break, we were talking about shame and we were talking about this whole process of getting to where you are now, being in the final months of this long and I'm sure not altogether easy process. And we talked about being sober out loud, you know, recovering out loud, and then also being a public figure, which other nurses listening aren't necessarily going to become public figures um, as they enter their, their recovery. But first, let's talk about sobriety and recovery. So in our private conversations, you and I have talked about the fact that in the recovery movement, there are different people who have different definitions of what sobriety or recovery means. So we could go deeply into what all of those people think, but let's just talk about what you think. So what does it mean to you to be sober and what does sobriety mean and what does recovery mean? Sober for me means free from mind-altering substances. I I abstain from mind-altering substances. Mm-hmm. Recovery is is a process. Recovery is um, a journey that I get to I get to be on for the rest of my life to recover from the reasons why I use substances in the first place. Right, because you mentioned at the top of the show how the substance is part of this, but it's a coping mechanism for other things. Like it's the deeper, more subterranean stuff, right? Yes, absolutely. I'm a designated coach for an organization called She Recovers. And their first guiding principle is that we are all recovering from something. Oh, okay. So there's a continuum then, right? Yeah, absolutely. My, my personal recovery is from religious trauma, self-loathing, disordered eating, depression, anxiety, and those led to my use of substances. M- most of us with addictive behaviors are self-medicating. I see. So it's not like we just decided to start drinking or using drugs just because. I mean, there's some trigger 
like you said, religious trauma, you, you mentioned a lot of different things. So yeah, I mean, if you think about it, why does someone want to be numb or why does someone need euphoria? Exactly. What is it that caused them to need to pick that up in the first place? Right? Exactly. It's, it's uh, substances, alcohol and, and drugs are a way to check out. They're a way to escape, to avoid and, and numb. Exactly. As you said. Now, I do want to talk just for a moment, well, it'll be more than a moment, a couple minutes, just about how if someone's using, for instance, Suboxone or Methadone, which are themselves substances that are used to, you know, counteract the craving and, you know, help you get to that place where you no longer need any of the above. Some people in the recovery movement feel that you can't really claim you're sober if you're using one of those substances. But Aren't those substances important for many people to actually make that leap and get to the place where eventually they are not using anything at all? I agree with you up into up to a point. Okay. Because the last part that you said is until they don't need anything at all. Right. And and I I don't believe that we are all going to or need to or should reach that point. Oh, good. Thank you for that clarification. Can you can you say a little more about that? Yeah. So I said that as a sober woman, I'm free from mind-altering substances, but I'm not free. I'm not medication-free. I'm not against medication mm. at all. And I am on Suboxone. So mm-hmm. Suboxone is a part of my treatment program. It is um, an opiate-type substance it binds to the opiate receptors in our brain. Right. It would prevent me from getting euphoria from if I were to take opiates in any form. It blocks the part of the opiate that is addictive. But it is it does cause a physical dependence, Suboxone does. Um, if I were to stop taking it, I would have withdrawals. Mm-hmm. So there is definitely controversy around Suboxone. There are purists that believe that if you take any form of of any medication at all that you are not truly sober hmm. and that's it's just not been my experience and i don't feel i need anyone else to you know label or define what sobriety is for me i take a medication prescribed by my physician i take it as prescribed i do not abuse it and i do not experience a mind, an altered mind state from taking it. So um, there are many experts that consider Suboxone to be similar to, let's say, an antidepressant for somebody who suffers chronic depression, somebody who who benefits so so greatly from taking an opiate. Like I, like I did, you know, getting the, that euphoria and energy and feeling okay, perhaps there is something missing, you know, chemically that mm-hmm. needs to be balanced out. And that's why we say, right, we say substance use disorder, because I've, I've also heard, not directly from you that I'm aware of, but I've heard people, quote unquote, out there talking about substance use as a brain disorder, that there's actually something going on chemically or neurochemically, I guess you'd say, just like depression. I take antidepressants. I'm very out about that. And so 
that's what helps me cope, right? In a very stressful world. And this is a pretty stressful world, especially right now with COVID-19 <laughs> and Black Lives Matter and the, the way our country is kind of on fire. So we all need ways to cope. And yours at this point is Suboxone. Mine is taking a, an antidepressant. So I see that point very clearly that it's assisting you in this recovery process, right? Yes, a hundred percent. So it it helped me to um to get sober in the first place. So it helps to prevent um the the horrible withdrawal, the horrible opiate withdrawal oh. that would then lead me back to, you know, dangerous opiates potentially. Right. But I I don't know that I will ever go off of it. I don't have a plan to at this time. Hmm. Um, I see a physician once a month. We we talk about it on a frequent basis. If and when I decide to wean off, I would do it under a physician's care. But it's like, yeah, it's very similar to an antidepressant. If it's working for you, if mm -hmm. you or your and I would say if you and your family, your friends, your career, your wellness are not suffering from your use of a medication, if there are not consequences, then to be sober, I don't see that there is a need to wean wean off. And I've, you know, had this discussion and I've written articles about this point that it doesn't prevent me from being a sober woman in recovery. I really appreciate that. And I've read so many of your articles and they're really wonderful. And we'll share links to a lot of them in the show notes and your website, and your social media platforms, et cetera. <laughs> but I'm glad I asked the question that I did and said at all, not using yeah. anything at all, because I think that's the way many people think. And obviously that's where my brain went in that moment, right? So yeah. even though I've read so much of your writing and listened to you talk about this stuff, those beliefs or those ways of thinking about this stuff creeps in, right? Because it's there. It's it's in the culture. So we talk about we have medication-assisted treatment, MAT, right? M-A-T. And then we have things like She Recovers, which is, it sounds like She Recovers, it's SheRecovers.com, right? It's SheRecovers.co. They just, .co, they were just designated right. as a 501 C3, C3 nonprofit. So they will be sherecovers.org soon. But yeah. Okay. Right. So she recovers, it sounds like is a global organization of women in recovery, right? And you are a certified life and recovery coach through another organization. Correct. It's the International Association of Professional Recovery Coaches through the NET Institute. Right. And then under the auspices of She Recovers, you also lead groups for She Recovers, right? I do. Yeah. I'm a facilitator. Those are online groups that you facilitate? Yes. Yeah. Great. And can you tell us what happens in those groups? I mean, not specifically, but what can someone expect if she goes to She Recovers and wants to be involved in one of these groups? What might happen? What might they experience? Sure. Well, let me share some exciting news. Two weeks ago, we started a, a She Recovers, we call it a sharing circle, hmm. um, not a meeting. So we, we began a She Recovers sharing circle for healthcare professionals and allied services. Oh, wow. Okay. Very exciting. 
And that just happened. Just, we've had two of them so far. Our next sharing circle will be this coming Saturday. So it's Saturdays at 8 a.m. Pacific. And that started just here in the first months of 2020. Yeah. Right. Great. Okay. So I'm sure that's that's going to grow. And so she recovers. People can join the sharing circles. They can be in a, in a group. And if they're in a facilitated group, are they with the same participants each time if they're in a group that you're facilitating? Yeah. The, well, I would say the group is, um, you know, there's, there's, I think, 3,000, 3,500 that are in the She Recovers Together Facebook group. Okay. And, um, and that's where we promote and market our Zoom meetings mostly. Mm-hmm. So. Twice a day, every day, she recovers, hosts a sharing circle. And there are many, many women that come frequently, consistently to all of the meetings. But, you know, there's some that come and go or don't go every day. Mm -hmm. Um, They're always facilitated by a certified coach. So there is usually a topic that is um, offered, you know, invite, you're invited to maybe share about this topic, but really it's just an open, welcoming, safe, loving space to share whatever is on your heart or mind. Not everyone in this group is sober because mm-hmm. again, we're all recovering from something, but we're not all recovering from addiction and, and substances and alcohol. And that I think makes it really special because there is so much more to us than our substance. And that is something that, for instance, 12-step meetings don't have to offer. I see. Right. Right. Because that's really about the substance, right? It's Narcotics Anonymous or Alcoholics Anonymous or Overeaters Anonymous, whatever it happens to be. Right. Right. So it's not 12-step. So if someone comes to the group from a 12-step paradigm, is that an issue in the She Recovers world? No, not at all. Mm-hmm. Most of us have some 12-step background. Um, okay. The founders it's so have 12-step. Yeah. It's it's really all that was available for decades. Sure. So, yeah, definitely. We, we welcome all programs and pathways of recovery and criticize none. That's one of our, our guiding principles as well. Wow. And you know what? I bet you welcome all comers and criticize none, no matter who they are. So yes. I think that extrapolates to the people, what they've done, what they're doing, what they haven't done. It sounds like there's no shame or criticism of any kind or judgment. That's the idea. Yeah. That's the idea. And I'm sure it's amazing. And I'm glad we have this new group for healthcare providers. And it's not just nurses, right? It's all healthcare providers? Correct. Yeah. There, there's a lot of nurses, but we wanted to open it to respiratory therapists and mm-hmm. um, just, yeah, a, a multitude of healthcare providers. We have dental assistants and we have therapists and first responders. And Great. so we really have that, that caregiving piece in common, mm-hmm. um, but not just nurses. And caregivers do have a lot in common. (laughs) There's been statements made, and I can't quote any stats, but that a large number of nurses either come from a home where there was substance abuse or substance use, let me say. There was substance use disorders. There was divorce. There was dysfunction. (laughs) One of my professors once said, yeah, about, I would say 75% of nurses come from a home that was wildly dysfunctional. That's that is a true stat. I think that 
it's, I think it's 80, 80% actually. Yeah. Come from a home that has like alcohol use disorder. Uh, I could never quite nail that stat down somewhere. So I just, I always say it's somewhere <laughs> in there somewhere. Hi. So I know we have to wrap up in a few minutes, but I want to just touch on something that I know is important to you. And that's mindfulness-based relapse prevention and mindfulness practice in practices in general. So what would you like to say about mindfulness and it's and the practice of mindfulness, especially in this particular milieu of, of recovery? Mm-hmm. Yeah, mindfulness is the the, the practice that has helped me stay sober, even during extraordinary stress, under extraordinary stress. I work in a, um, okay. a COVID ICU. So I'm, I'm directly working with, you know, the tragedy and the trauma of the coronavirus. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for that service. Well, you're welcome. And Mindfulness-based relapse prevention it was actually created at the University of Washington. It's a spinoff from mindfulness-based stress reduction, um, which right. is the, John Kabat-Zinn. John Kabat-Zinn. Zinn, that yeah, whole yep. World. Mindfulness yep. helps us to come into the present moment, to accept the present moment, and eliminate the need to escape, avoid, or numb ourselves. So it's perfect for sobriety. It's perfect because it teaches us that we can handle emotional discomfort, which a few years ago I couldn't. I couldn't handle the slightest amount of emotional discomfort. You know, my my ability to cope was so was so poor and so damaged and you know, the longer we use substances to cope, the harder it is to handle, you know, any little thing. Um, and and mindfulness empowers us to do that. Wow. So someone listening out there is was thinking, so Tiffany's in this program. She's almost finished. She's been doing this almost five years. She's speaking out loud and being sober out loud. And she's working in a COVID ICU. And she's fully in her recovery process and talking about ways in which she can use her mind and I'm assuming your breath and meditative techniques to actually cope with a COVID ICU. I mean, that's fairly stressful, I would think. And and here we are in this world in the middle of a pandemic. You're in one of the hotspots in Washington state, and there's protests all over the country right now as we speak. And there's a lot swirling around in the world. And it sounds like the mindfulness is a very important tool for you personally, right? It's a non-negotiable for me right now. Yeah, it's non-negotiable. a non-negotiable. Yeah. And do you feel that this mindfulness practice, is it something you have to think about doing? Or is it more like, how does it manifest in your life from moment to moment? Sure. Um, that's a good way to put it, moment to moment, because mm-hmm. that's that's a part of the mindfulness definition. Oh, there you go. Mindfulness is really the the concept, and then meditation is the practice. So if you were going to the gym for your brain, (laughs) it would be sitting to to do meditation. But um, we don't meditate to become amazing meditators. We meditate to 
to live life better, to have a better quality of life. So I, I, at this point, many of the mindfulness practices are my default nature. That was the hope and the goal and the point is to become more mindful as I go through life. Now, I'm not all the time, for sure. I don't know if any human is. It's just a process. Tough one. Yeah. But I do, you know, I, I have a daily practice mm-hmm. and, um, and that is sitting with guided slash silent meditation. And I, I have a mentor, a teacher who I'm, I'm working with. And, and actually, I'll be a certified meditation teacher here soon. Um, as awesome. well. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. That's, does that make sense? How, how it manifests in my life is to, you know, I, I question my thoughts. I'm more present. I'm aware of my reactions and I try to be more responsive and, you know, wise responses instead of being reactive to emotions or thoughts or physical sensations. I, I notice when I want to escape and instead of escaping, I find ways to, to to stay. I see. To be with it. Instead of escaping, being with it, that's mindfulness because you're in the moment, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. Right. So it makes sense that mindfulness is the concept. Meditation is the practice. Just like you have recovery is a practice and sobriety. So there's all these continua, I guess you say, right? Three continuums would be continua. So there's these different continua on which you're traveling every moment, right? From the moment you wake up to the moment you go to sleep, to the moment you take Cassie, the wonder dog for a walk. So as we wrap up, I just want to mention that people can find you at recoverandrise.com and then on Facebook, Recover and Rise. And then on LinkedIn, you're Tiffany Swedeen. We'll have a link in the show notes. And then Instagram is actually Scrubbed Clean RN, which I love. And you have the most amazing, wonderful, fun, thought-provoking, inspiring Instagram feed. So I follow you, you know, all the time because it's so wonderful. Thank you. Your stories, your posts, everything is really incredible. So Cassie the Wonder Dog is your canine soulmate who's with you and travels with you in your VW van, right? Yeah. She, she's my canine soulmate. She's also the CEO of Recover and Rise, the yes. canine executive officer. Well, that's, yeah. I've never heard of a canine executive <laughs> officer. That's, that's, you know, people are really stretching out in that corporate structure and I'm sure she does a great job. And yeah, George is sort of like, I guess he'd be the FEO, the the feline right. executive officer. So I'll have to share that with him over dinner. <laughs> so we'll have a picture of Cassie, I hope, in the show notes if you send oh, yes, really please. One. Or maybe you and Cassie together. That yeah. So Tiffany, my dear friend and amazing human being and nurse, thank you so much. And this has just been incredible. And you are it's sounds cliche, but you're an incredibly inspiring person. Thank you. Thank you. That That's what I, I hope to do. I've said this before, but I, I don't think I can say it too many times. I, I have many regrets over my actions. There's a lot I wish I had never done, but I don't regret where I am today at all. And I'm so grateful for the inspirations that I've encountered in recovery and that I've seen wise mindfulness role modeled 
and um, compassion role modeled and self-love role modeled. It's not something I, I grew up with. And so I'm really excited that even, you know, at this age, I can, I can start and I can show to others. It's, it's really an honor for me. Mm. Well, it's an honor to have you here. And thank you for leading the way and opening the gate for so many other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Nurse Keith. Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Nurse Keith Show. And please go to the show notes at nursekeith.com forward slash episode 275 to read about and connect with the amazing Tiffany Swedeen. I hope you feel uplifted and empowered from this episode. And I encourage you to take inspired action every day in the interest of your personal and professional satisfaction and development, joy and happiness. So the Nurse Keith Show is adroitly produced by Rob Johnston of 520R Podcasting. Mark Cappiespeason is our stalwart social media ringmaster. I'm so grateful to both Rob and Mark for keeping the wheels turning in the right direction. Be well, dig deep, seek joy, keep in touch. This is Nurse Keith saying adios till next time from beautiful Santa Fe, New Mexico. And Tiffany Swedeen bidding you adieu from... Mount Vernon, Washington. Mount Vernon, Washington. Thank you, Tiffany. And we will catch everybody on the flip side.